Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, Heaven and Hell. So turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, The Final Judgment. Before we speak of the final judgment, we need to bear several important facts in mind. Death is an ever-present reality for every member of the human race. Death is the consequence of the fall into sin, and it's a reminder that no one escapes the final judgment. Second, heaven is not the default position to which we all tend. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Our rebellion against that which is ultimately righteous and worthy of infinite praise Well, that's an infinite evil. All have sinned. Heaven is not the default position. We need a savior. A third truth is the glorious truth of the salvation and redemption of sinners. We hear the good news and we believe and we receive the gift of eternal life. And fourth, if we die before Christ returns, we're immediately ushered into the presence of God and we await our final resurrection body and that's called the intermediate state. Now, when Christ returns, those who have died in Christ and are in the intermediate state will immediately receive their final resurrection bodies. Those who are left alive at Christ's return will not precede those who have fallen asleep. That is, they will receive their resurrection bodies immediately upon the return of Christ. We need to briefly mention the reality of the millennium, a period of a thousand years where those believers redeemed by Christ with undying resurrection bodies, assist him in his governance of the earth. At the end of the millennium, the earth and its elements will be dissolved. That's in 2 Peter 3, verse 10. The heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works done in it will be exposed. And at that time, when the last chapter of this sin-cursed earth has been written, Revelation 20, 11 to 15 indicates the next great event. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You know, there are some who argue that there are three separate judgments, but from my understanding of Scripture, there's only one final judgment, all happening at the same time in the same place. The final judgment will happen after the millennium and the rebellion that occurs at the end of it, resulting in Christ's final triumph. Now, the final judgment presents us with a picture of a righteous God who demonstrates his justice in the life of every single human being. With the billions of people who have lived and died, not one life is forgotten. Not one deed done on this earth can be covered up either for good or for bad. Jesus said that in Luke 12, verse 3. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. According to 2 Timothy 4, verse 1, it is Jesus Christ himself who is judge of the living and the dead. And that's repeated in Acts 10, 42, 
where we're told that Jesus is the one who is ordained by God the Father to judge the living and the dead. And that would mean that all who have died and all who remain at the end of the millennium will stand before Christ for judgment. In short, no one, including believers, will be excluded. But as Jesus indicates in Matthew 25, 31 to 32, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. So we can see Jesus moving among the mass of humanity, arranging them in two different groups. They will consist of the redeemed and those who have no redeemer. According to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 3, unbelievers will be judged, believers will be judged, and the angelic beings will be judged. Revelation 20 states that when humanity stands before the throne, books are open. Now, John doesn't tell us what these books are, but the context seems to indicate that these books contain the deeds of all people. These books will include an accurate record of what they have done, what they have left undone, what they have thought, and what they have loved and what they have hated. The books will contain a full objective evaluation of every single human life. According to Jesus in Matthew 12, verse 36, on the day of judgment, men will render account for every careless word they utter. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 14 says, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And from this, it becomes clear that every single human being will be judged on the basis of their works. According to Romans 2, verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works. Then later in verse 11, we're told God shows no partiality. One's position in life, one's wealth, whatever might have been a person's advantage in life, all that's cleared aside. That might be what John means when he says that before this throne of judgment, earth and sky fled. He means that no other extenuating matters can be brought in. Of course, the earth has been burned up, and so all hope any person has in this earth perishes as well. And what will be the results of these books? Romans 3.10 has already indicated God's judgment. None is righteous, no, not one. But judgment, it seems, does more than simply find everyone wanting. According to Romans 3.12-13, people are judged by what they have done. This helps us to see two very important features in the final judgment. First, it helps us to rid ourselves of the mistaken notion that people are condemned because they didn't become Christians or because they rejected Christ. Instead, they will be condemned because of their deeds. Second, it also helps to answer those who take issue with the final judgment, asking what happens to a person who's never heard of Christ. See, the answer is that every person will be judged by their works. That's reinforced in Romans 1, where Paul declares that the wrath of God is poured out because people suppressed even the truth of God that they had from nature. See, judgment will be fair. Jesus supplies us with everything we need to be spared from the devastating judgment to come. His rescue plan is found in his substitutionary death on the cross for his elect. But if that's so, is it not true that believers in Christ will not be judged on the basis of works? So to be clear, everyone will be judged on the basis of works. Either the judgment will be on the basis of our works, or should we surrender our lives to Christ the Savior? The judgment will be on the basis of His works. See, the marvelous nature of our salvation 
is that when believers stand before the bar of God's judgment, all who believe will find that their lives are hid in Christ. Notice that because judgment is on the basis of works, punishment or reward is meted out on the basis of works. Jesus said so in Luke 12, 47 to 48. And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not make ready or act according to his will, shall receive a severe beating. But he who did not know and did what deserved a beating shall receive a light beating. And in Matthew 11, verse 22, Jesus tells the cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. So we affirm that God's justice is not administered with a crude hammer. Rather, it's administered with a precision of a scalpel. It's tailor-made for every single human being. So what of believers? Well, according to Revelation 20, another book is opened at the judgment, and that one's the book of life. So every once in a while, we hear people say, you know, we're going to be surprised at who's in heaven and who's not. Now, is that true? Well, it's true now, but it won't be true then. Let's be clear. Scripture indicates that all those who died with their name already in the book of life were immediately ushered into paradise when they died. All who are left alive at the coming of our Lord, who had their names in the book of life, will be taken up in the twinkling of an eye and then will immediately receive their resurrection bodies. And so in truth, by the time of the judgment, before the great white throne, there's going to be no surprises. The mystery of who believed and who did not will have been resolved long before anyone arrives there. So why this opening of the book of life? Well, I think the answer is that the opening of the book of life is an important act nonetheless. It's done to proclaim the work of Christ. This is a symbolic act. The opening of the book of life makes the statement that this book contains a list of all those who would have been condemned with the rest of mankind were it not for the saving work of Christ. What a glorious moment. Since Christ was condemned on behalf of the redeemed, is there then no judgment for the saints? Well, the answer is yes, there is. According to 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 to 10, Paul speaking to believers says, So whether we are at home or away, that is, alive here on earth, or having died in the intermediate state, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Talk about heaven and hell has been forgotten in the present hour. For this reason, current evangelicalism sounds so very different from the kind of faith we find in the pages of the New Testament. In his preaching, Jesus depicted a roadway leading to either heaven or hell. The broad road leads to destruction. The narrow path leads to life. These are words written by Dr. John Newfeld in his newest book, Heaven and Hell. What could be as important as understanding the truth behind the reality of heaven and hell? Choose to request this new book today as our free gift for the month of November only. Call us now at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca. And while you're there, Consider offering a financial gift to support Bible teaching you can trust in important Bible teaching resources like heaven and hell. There's a judgment yet coming for all who name the name of Christ. But what can this be since the Bible makes it clear 
According to Romans 8 verse 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, we get hints about the judgment of believers from several passages in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 3, 12 to 15 records Paul speaking about the care that each of us should take when we build upon the foundation of Christ. In that passage, the foundation represents the foundational truths about Christ, his gospel in the church, the doctrines found in the scripture. Now, says Paul, if we build on that foundation using substandard building materials, well, the final judgment will disclose the kind of work that we have done. So inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul reveals there are some whose names are written in the book of life who will see that everything they have done in this life has amounted to no eternal benefit. Well, other passages speak about that as well. 1 Corinthians 4, 3-5. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things that are now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from the Lord. Now, for those who are confused at this point, let's remember the totality of Scripture. 1 Corinthians 4, 3-5 speaks about the commendation from God, not about the condemnation from God. Our sins were born by Christ, we bear them no more. Even if that should be, as Paul teaches, that the Lord will bring to light all things now hidden in darkness, even that shouldn't disturb the believer. You see, some believers find the prospect of a thorough examination of their lives to be troubling. They feel intimidated that their secret sins should now be made known. But we should not fret. Let every sin we have ever done in life be exposed. Let everything that now shames us become known. The revelation of our sin will not serve to condemn us, but rather it will serve to highlight the grace of him who has taken away our condemnation. For it should, for the sake of his glory, be made known how great is the grace, love, and mercy of him who paid for our sins on his cross. If all our secret sins are made known, we're not going to be condemned. Christ was condemned for us. Making our sins known will only serve to make us more aware of what Christ has done. It will highlight his glory and will worship him. But some are going to object. Well, doesn't Hebrews 8 verse 12 say, I'll remember their sins no more. So let's be clear about what that verse doesn't say. It doesn't say that God has amnesia or that there are huge gaps in his memory process, like a God with dementia. To never remember our sins is to say that God will never use our sins against us. He never calls them to mind in his judgment against us because Christ was judged on our behalf. Well, if that's the case, why are believers judged at all? And the answer must be that the judgment of believers is a judgment unto rewards. So we are not to fear condemnation. Rather, Christ will judge the nature of the rewards that we will receive. So where does the Bible teach that? Well, we've already seen that Paul mentions that we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ when each will receive his commendation, not condemnation, from God. But there's more. Consider Jesus' teaching on the matter of the ten minas in Luke 19. A nobleman went to a far country. While he's gone, he called ten of his servants, giving them each a mina. No, mina is a unit of money. Each is told to engage in business until he returned. 
Now when the nobleman returned, the first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And in other words, he had earned a tenfold rate of return. And in response, the nobleman tells that man, I will put you in charge of 10 cities. Another will be put in charge of five cities. And from this parable, we learn that in the day of judgment, when Christ judges his own, he hands out rewards in keeping with the faithfulness of each servant. It's a judgment unto rewards. To some is given much, and to others is given less. While the idea of rewards in heaven is standard biblical teaching, Matthew 5, 11 to 12, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. You know, from Jesus' teaching, we see that not only are there rewards, but that some rewards, as we've seen, are larger and greater than others. Well, should the idea of receiving a reward in heaven actually motivate us? Well, some find that troubling. So it appears to them a lesser reason to follow Christ. I mean, should not our motives be love for Jesus without reference to what advantage we will receive? I mean, none should deny that, you know, gratefulness to Christ should motivate us. However, Jesus himself was motivated by rewards. Hebrews 12, 3 who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus endured the cross, not just because he obeyed the Father in all things. Of course, he was determined to submit to the Father in everything. But Hebrews tells us he was also motivated by the joy that awaited him when he would be seated at the right hand of the Father. And Paul invites us to do the same thing. Colossians 3:23 to 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Or 2 Corinthians 9 verse 6 speaks of the rewards granted to believers in the final day. It says, whoever sows sparingly must also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And Matthew 10:41 to 42 agrees. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So over and over again, the Bible encourages us to strive to gain rewards that will not pass away. Luke 12, 33, Jesus even encourages his followers to make for themselves the kind of money belts that will not wear out. He then tells them that they have an unfailing treasure in heaven. So let's remember, therefore, that the reality of what's to come has a great deal to do with how we conduct our lives now. And for that reason, we shouldn't be perplexed if we are denied rewards here on earth. Our reward is not in the present world. It's in heaven. And since there are different levels of reward in heaven, are there also different levels of happiness in heaven? Well, Jonathan Edwards wrote about that. He said, there are different degrees of happiness and glory in heaven. As there are degrees among the angels, vis-a-vis the throne and dominions and principalities and powers, so there are degrees among the saints. The glory of the saints will be in proportion to their eminency in holiness and good works here. Now, some of us find that troubling. Wouldn't that create problems in heaven? If one is put in authority over much and another in little, would that hierarchy not mirror the misery of competition and envy we find here on this earth? 
Well, here again, Jonathan Edwards helps us. He says, And there shall be no such thing as envy in heaven, but perfect love shall reign through the whole society. Those who are not so high in glory as the other will not envy those that are higher, but they will have so great and strong and pure love to them, and they will rejoice in their superior happiness. (laughs) I love the idea of a world yet to come where the green monster of envy is banished forever. Imagine a world where the reward of someone is not the cause of condescending talk, but rather results in an explosion of joy. Hard to imagine, don't you think? We need to imagine a heaven that's not static, but dynamic and growing. We need to imagine a heaven where the saints will rule with Christ and be given varied and different assignments. We need also to imagine a heaven where the reward that comes is related to our faithfulness here. And we need to imagine a heaven not besought with sorrow or disdain, a society where perfect love prevails. The life of heaven is not disconnected from the life here on earth. The life on earth is meaningful. We need to be engaged in the master's business, for the things that we do in the name of Christ will redound to his glory, and they will matter for eternity. If we shun the flesh, if we crucify the flesh with its desires, and if we gladly, for the sake of Christ, suffer the loss of all earthly things, we will by no means lose our reward. We must see the business of the saints as an eternal business. Unlike those who have no hope, we're involved in an eternal project. Now, there's so much more to say about heaven, but this is but the beginning, and I would commend to you a lifetime of studying the matter of heaven. It will motivate your life here on earth. Thanks so much, John. You know, I got to tell you, I find it really intimidating, maybe even frightening, the idea that all of my sins will be recounted. How do I wrap my head around that without feeling completely overwhelmed? And wouldn't it be heaven? Wouldn't it be heavenly uh, to finally... Uh, think about wherever I have sinned in terms of the glory of Christ rather than how it appears to me. You know, we think in this world, because we're so infected by sin, of what will humiliate me, um, and we will think in heaven in terms of what brings maximum glory to Christ. And uh, that's all I'm arguing, that somehow um, we will lay aside all of this self-aggrandizement and think only about the glory of Jesus. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we conclude our series, Heaven and Hell, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Have you made plans to join us April 24th to May 2nd, 2022? for the next Israel experience? Maybe you're holding back and we understand, so we've made it easier to register and easy to be refunded if for some reason we're unable to travel. So don't hesitate, register before the limited space is sold out. Join Dr. John Neufeld, Alatha Gaines, Phil Calloway, recently confirmed musical artist Laura Hastings and the Back to the Bible Canada team. Travel to the Holy Land where Jesus, Paul and David walked. Visit the Jordan River, David's royal palace, sail the Sea of Galilee, commune at the Garden Tomb. While the full Israel itinerary is now available, 
So for more information or to support this Bible teaching ministry, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit our events page at backtothebible.ca.